welcome to a special edition of ABI Podcasts, where we are looking ahead to the American Bankruptcy Institute's annual spring meeting. I'm Melissa Jacoby, the ABI resident scholar for spring 2016, and I'm also a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So today I'm talking to Michael Bernstein. He's the chair of Arnold and Porter's bankruptcy and restructuring practice, and will be speaking at the annual spring meeting on fraudulent transfer litigation. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So the description of the session is basically best practices bringing and defending fraudulent transfer claims. So I'm hoping you can give us a preview and break that down for us. Are there particular cases that you anticipate discussing? Uh, yes, there are. We're going to hit a number of the recent cases, as you know, in the last year or two. There's been a plethora of cases raising fraudulent transfer issues and and defenses. And we're going to try to keep this session focused on practical issues that folks have to keep in mind when considering bringing or defending fraudulent transfer actions, and then highlight the uh, the recent case law. So historically, we see some trends in what kinds of transactions give rise to this litigation. We know LBOs are often on the table. Is that, is, are we, have we seen more of the same there, or are we seeing some other kinds of transactions being brought in? Well, uh, we're seeing a bunch of LBO cases. We continue to see a bunch of LBO cases, but there have been some other kinds of cases as well. Obviously, long before LBOs existed, there were traditional fraudulent transfer cases. Um, the guy who's getting sued, so he gives his boat to his mother-in-law. I'm always amazed um, how those still continue to happen. Right, Older right. Well, the... Well, the cases that uh, get the uh, most attention in the press are the billion-dollar LBOs, uh, but uh, you know, around the country there are still some regular plain old fraudulent transfer cases. In addition, as we see more cross-border bankruptcies, there are some cross-border, uh, some interesting cross-border fraudulent transfer cases and. Um, issues around the extraterritorial effect of the fraudulent transfer laws and uh, subsequent transferees who are offshore and so forth. And as you know, in the last few years, there have been a bunch of Ponzi schemes, and those have given rise to a special subset of fraudulent transfer law around Ponzi schemes. So is that something that raises particular practical issues that you'll be giving pointers are on? Um, yeah, it does. So what we're going to do is kind of take take through in order the analysis of a fraudulent transfer case. So we we start with investigating a fraudulent transfer case and and uh, and presenting the claim, stating a claim, and that involves the who are the parties who could assert a claim because we traditionally think of the debtor, but of course there's possible that it could be a committee or a liquidating trust or even an assignee of the estate, and sometimes there are some benefits to to having an assignee bring the claim, and then what the elements of the claims are, and that differs, of course, depending on what sort of claim you're asserting, whether it's a constructive fraudulent transfer claim or an actual fraud claim, and we talk about using badges of fraud to prove intent, and um, and then identifying who the right tra- transferees are, whether it's an initial transferee or a subsequent transferee, and, and some of the special issues around um, proving cases against subsequent transferees and the the choice of forum, what court the case is going to be brought in. And that's sort of the the first part of the discussion that we intend to have. And then we turn to defenses. 
And in addition to the traditional statutory defenses, as I said, in certain kinds of cases, there are special defenses. Extraterritoriality is an example of that. Sovereign immunity issues have come up in some cases over the last couple of years when a fraudulent transfer claim is brought against a governmental entity. And then you referred to the uh, the LBO cases, and many of those raise the 546 safe harbor defense. And so we're going to focus some of the discussion on the safe harbor, not only how to assert it, but how possibly to circumvent that defense. Um, the issue about whether the safe harbor applies to private transactions, which is still to some extent an open issue. Um, the collapsing issues that have arisen in, for example, the Mervyn's case in Delaware. Um, and then the possibility that um, the defense might be circumvented by allowing an individual creditor or a group of creditors rather than an estate representative to bring the, the action. And I think that's that whole discussion is important and timely because the 546 safe harbor is such an important defense in so many of the so many of the recent cases. But we're also mindful of the fact that this is supposed to be a practical kind of how-to sort of panel. So we also want to talk about um, how to build your case as a practical matter and how to defend the how to defend the case. We're trying to make what uh, we talk about at this panel uh, not theoretical, but very practicable, practical and actionable. So we're going to talk about how to prove insolvency and effective use of experts in in that regard and and proving proving valuation and establishing damages um, and uh, uh, and all of that I think is relevant from the plaintiff's perspective as well from, from the perspective of somebody defending a fraudulent transfer action and we kind of intend to address those issues both from the plaintiff perspective and from the defendant defendant's perspective. Um, and then there are some other issues that have gained currency in the last uh, couple of years. One is uh, we're seeing more and more guarantee cases, affiliate guarantee cases, and we're going to talk about how to treat upstream and downstream guarantees. Um, and and finally, there's an interesting issue that's arisen in some multi-debtor cases involving payments from concentration accounts. The, the Land America case in the Eastern District of Virginia was an interesting example of that, where all the dollars from the various affiliated debtors go into a particular account, and that account is used to pay expenses as needed for the for the group, and that raises particular sort of tracing issues that are relevant in fraudulent transfer cases. So there's a movement afoot in state law to change Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act to voidable transfer act, as well as some other changes, uh, which is a hard vernacular to accept uh, from my perspective, but we do see some states going that direction. Is that Does that state law element come up at all at this point, or the changes aren't big enough to make a difference in the strategy in bankruptcy? So far, I would say primarily the latter. I think there's a lot of specific changes and terminology differences, but probably less the difference at, at this point. But as you know, not all of those changes have been made and implemented, and it takes some time to work through 50 state legislatures. So uh, the future is young, perhaps. Absolutely. And that made add another dimension to venue questions and choice of law and the like. So one thing that we often get out of looking at fraudulent transfer litigation are hints about how to structure transactions in the first place, what mistakes have been made and how they could be corrected in future transactions that 
don't have an obvious fraudulent intent, uh, but after the fact have a constructive fraudulent effect. Uh, is your panel going to go into that at all? Yeah, we, we are. We absolutely are. I think it's an important issue. And I find that having litigated a bunch of fraudulent transfer cases for going on 25 years now, I'm more often brought in by my corporate partners and clients to, at the stage of structuring a transaction, to try to minimize fraudulent transfer risk. And so I think it's an important issue. And, and obviously, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So we're going to talk on the panel about some of the considerations in designing and documenting and structuring a transaction. Um, that may include things like solvency reps and warranties, and we can talk about how much that matters, um, the use of fairness opinions and their evidentiary value in subsequent fraudulent transfer uh, litigation, and how as a practical matter to present those issues to the court, um, the, the use of outside expert advice, resolutions, and other contemporaneous transaction documents, and the extent to which those are relevant in subsequent litigation, and whether you can kind of build at the time that you're structuring the transaction an evidentiary case that will be helpful in rebutting a fraudulent transfer case. And then this interesting issue of whether you can um, structure your transaction as a securities transaction so that it maximizes the chance of falling within one of the safe harbors. Um, another issue we're going to talk about is from the uh, plaintiff's perspective, because of course that's all from the defense perspective, is the possibility of enjoining uh, a fraudulent transfer because sometimes um, uh, somebody will see it coming, and um, while you can seek to avoid the transaction after the fact, if the, if you can stop the transaction in advance, um, uh, that may be a better approach. There is some there is some issues about the court's jurisdiction, but we're going to touch on that as well. Just one last thing. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about who else will be on the panel with you in terms of the perspectives that are taking? Is this more going to be a a, a, a disagreement, or are you, or is this more of a collaborative, uh, practical application we're going to see here? Well, we'll we, we do have different perspectives. We'll try our best not to throw things at each other when we're up there on the panel, um, but um, uh, but we do have different perspectives from folks who tend to represent uh, uh, trustees and plaintiffs, like Ed Weisfelder, to. Uh, uh, to uh, people who are more on the defense side, uh, defense-oriented. But our, our, we don't think we'll uh, spend as much time uh, disagreeing with each other up there as much as kind of giving different perspectives. We hope to, you know, kind of talk about the same issues but give a plaintiff's perspective and a and a defendant's perspective on, on each of the issues. Well, that's fair enough. Of course, we in the audience always like a little disagreement. It sounds like We'll, we'll get that. So that's a good place to end. Uh, I want to thank Michael Bernstein for giving us this preview. Thanks, Michael. All right. Happy to do it. Uh, and thanks to the listeners and hope to see you at the ABI annual spring meeting. <laughs>